choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 231 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Final Duties and World Reaction. On August 10, 1969, quarantine officially ended for the Apollo 11 crew. But that did not end the duties required for a flight of that magnitude. On August 12th, the astronauts conducted a post-flight press conference. They were greeted with a standing ovation from members of the media. During the first part of the press conference, the astronauts presented a slideshow of the highlights of their mission. For the first time since the flight, the media was able to see a photographic presentation created and controlled by the astronauts and interact with them in person. Here are a few of my favorite clips. It was our pleasure to have participated in one great adventure. It's an adventure that took place not just in the month of July, but rather one that took place in the last decade. We all here and the people listening in today had the opportunity to share that adventure over its developing and unfolding in the past months and years. It's our privilege today to share with you some of the details of that final month of July that was certainly the highlight for the three of us of of that decade. In the final phases of uh, descent, after a number of program alarms, we looked at the landing area and found a very large crater just in the very left top corner of the picture. The, the camera is located in the right window and looks to the right and it just barely sees this boulder field we're passing over right now. We're at 400 feet and those boulders are about 10 feet across. This was the area which we decided we would not go into, extended the range downrange and saw this crater which we passed over, this 80-foot crater, in the final phases of descent and later took some pictures of. Now you can see the exhaust being, uh, the, the exhaust dust being kicked up by the, by the engine and uh, this was uh, some 
concern in that it degraded our ability to determine not only our altitude and altitude rate in the final phases, but also, and probably more importantly, our translational velocities o over the ground. It's uh, quite important not to stub your toe during the final phases of, of touchdown. And once, uh, once settled on the surface, the, the dust cleared immediately, and we had an excellent view of the area surrounding the limb. This is the view out the left window. It shows uh, a cratered surface, uh, pockmarked with craters uh, up to 15, 20, 30 feet, and many smaller craters down to a diameter of one foot. And of course, the surface was very fine-grained. We could tell that from, uh, from our view out the window. But there were a surprisingly large number of rocks of all sizes. A number of, of experts had, prior to the flight, predicted that a good bit of difficulty might be encountered by people attempting to work on the surface of the moon due to this variety of strange atmospheric and gravitational characteristics that, that would be encountered. It, it was, in fact, in, in our view, preferable both to weightlessness and the Earth's gravity. This led us to believe, this in conjunction with the fact that all the systems in the limb were, were operating magnificently and we had very few problems, to uh, go ahead with the, with the surface work immediately. Uh, we predicted that we might be ready uh, to leave the limb by 8 o'clock, but those of you who followed on the ground recognize we missed our estimate by a good deal. This was due to a number of factors. Uh, one, we had uh, house cleaning to perform, uh, food packages, flight plans, and uh, all the items that we had used in the previous descent to be stowed out of the way and prior to depressurizing the, the lunar module. Uh, it took longer to depressurize the lunar module than we had anticipated, and it also took longer to get the cooling units in our backpacks uh, operating than, than we had expected. When we actually descended the, the ladder, it, found, it was found to be very much like the lunar gravity simulations we had performed here on Earth. And no difficulty was was encountered in, in descending the ladder. The last step was about three and a half feet from the surface, uh, and uh, we're somewhat concerned that uh, we might have difficulty in, in re-entering the limb at the end of our activity period, so we practiced, uh, practiced that before doing uh, the exercise of bringing the camera down, which took the subsequent surface pictures. here. You see the camera being lowered on what might be called a Brooklyn clothesline. I, I was operating quite carefully here because immediately to my right and off the picture was a six-foot deep crater, and I uh, was somewhat concerned about uh, uh, losing my balance on the steep slopes. 
I quickly put up the TV camera. We found uh, on a number of occasions that we were able to help each other in many ways on the surface. Uh, you probably recall the times that I got my foot caught in the television cable and Buzz was able to help me extract it without, without falling down. We had uh, some difficulty at first uh, getting the uh, pole of the flag to remain into the surface. Uh, in penetrating the surface, we found that uh, most objects would uh, go down about five, maybe six inches, and then it would meet with a uh, gradual resistance. Uh, at the same time, there was not much of a supporting force on either side, so we had to lean the flag back slightly uh, in order for it to, uh, to maintain this position. So many people have done so much to give us this opportunity to place this American flag on the surface. To me, it was one of the prouder moments of my life to be able to stand there and quickly salute the flag. The rest, the rest of the activity seemed to go very rushed. Uh, there were a lot of things to do, and uh, we had a hard time getting them finished. The primary difficulty that we observed was that there was just far too little time to do the myriads of things that we would have liked to have done. In the, in the pictures we showed earlier, you saw uh, rocks in the boulder field out Buzz's window that were three and four feet uh, in size, very likely uh, pieces of the lunar bedrock. And it would have been very interesting to go over and, and uh, get some samples of those. There were other craters that uh, differed widely that uh, that would have been interesting to to examine and photograph and uh, we had the problem of uh, of the five-year-old boy in a, in a candy store there were just too many interesting things to do there was a question as to whether the limb would sink in up to its knees it didn't as you can see uh, the foot pad sunk in perhaps an inch or two and uh, the probe uh, in this picture was folded over and sticks up through the sand in the bottom right hand uh, corner showing uh, showing that we were indeed traveling slightly sideways at, at touchdown and the ascent was a great pleasure it was very smooth uh, we're very, very pleased to have that engine light up. <laughs> uh, gave us a excellent view of the, our, our uh, takeoff trajectory and tranquility base as we left. And at all times through the ascent, we could pick up uh, landmarks that assured us that we were on the, on the proper track. There were uh, no difficulties with the ascent, and uh, we, uh, we enjoyed the ride more than we could say. 
You've noted some oscillations in this film during ascent, and that's a real characteristic. The, the vehicle, due to the changing center gravity as fuel is used, uh, does uh, a good bit of five-degree oscillations throughout the ascent. This is Eagle as seen by Columbia, or perhaps half an Eagle would be better since uh, the uh, landing gear and lower part, the descent stage, of course, remained on the surface. This was uh, a, a very happy part of the flight for me. I, uh, for the first time, really felt that uh, we were going to carry the thing off at this stage of the game, and it looked like... Uh, <laughs> although, uh, although we were far from home, we were uh, a lot closer to it than, uh, than the pure distance might indicate. Uh, Neil's making the initial maneuvers here to get turned around, and then again I do the final docking. This is somewhat swifter than, uh, than real time. The probe, the, uh, the dark uh, funnel on the top of the limb, and the, uh, the docking target below it and to the left in the, uh, the lighter portion of the limb. The, uh, as Buzz said, the rendezvous was absolutely beautiful. They came up... Uh, from below, absolutely uh, as if they were riding on rails. There was absolutely no uh, no disturbance uh, or any uh, off-nominal effects during the last part of the rendezvous. Upper uh, right, you can see the uh, the RCS quads, and uh, down below the various uh, antenna and other protuberances. This gives you some idea of the uh, the rough terrain available on the moon. Of course, uh, the maria on the front side are, uh, are uh, smoother than this, but in general, the, the, the back side of the moon is, uh, is quite rough, and uh, I have, uh, in general, just a series of slides which, in the interest of time, I'm not going to uh, dwell on, but i just like to point out that we did take a, a number of pictures. I believe from Columbia we took probably uh, a thousand stills, and uh, some of them uh, show very interesting uh, surface features various uh, types of unusual craters, and uh, uh, some of them pose many riddles, which we hope uh, the geologists will in time uh, be able to answer for us. After the presentation, the astronauts answered some very interesting questions from the media. Here are a few of my favorites. I'd like to ask Neil Armstrong when he began to think of what he would say when he put his foot down on the lunar surface, and how long he pondered this, this sta the statement about uh, a small step for man, gigantic leap for mankind. Yes, I did uh, think about it. Uh, it, I, it was not extemporaneous, neither was it planned. It evolved during the conduct of the flight, and I decided what the words would be while we were on the lunar, lunar surface just prior to leaving the land. I'd like to ask Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but when you first stepped on the moon, did it strike you as you were stepping, that you were stepping on uh, a piece of the earth or uh, sort of what your inner feelings were, uh, uh, whether you felt you were standing in a desert or this was really another world or how you felt at that point? Well, there was no question in our minds where we were. We'd been orbiting around the moon for quite a while. At, at the same time, uh, uh, we have experienced 1-6-G uh, before. Uh, we've been exposed to some degree to the, uh, the lighting that we saw. 
Uh, however, this was, in my case, an extremely foreign situation with the uh, stark nature of the uh, light and dark conditions. And of course, we uh, first set foot on the moon in, in the dark, shadowy area. Uh, there was a lot of discussion uh, during the flight, uh, during the descent, power descent portion of the flight, uh, about the program alarms and so forth. And I wondered if uh, you all could uh, describe your uh, thoughts on the subject, how it went, and what uh, advice you might have to offer the crews of Apollo 12 and subsequent flights for this portion of the mission. Well, I, th I think we've, uh, we pretty well understand what, what caused these program alarms. It was uh, the fact that the computer was in the process of uh, solving the landing problem, and at the same time uh, we had the uh, rendezvous radar in a powered-up condition. And uh, this tended to uh, add an additional burden to the, uh, to the computer operation. Now, uh, I don't think that uh, either the ground people uh, or ourselves really anticipated that this would happen. Uh, it was not a serious program alarm. It just told us that for a brief instant, the computer was reaching a point of, of being uh, over-programmed over or having too many jobs waiting for it to do. You know, a computer continually goes through a wait list of one item after another, and this list was beginning to fill up, and the program alarm came up. Unfortunately, it came at a point uh, when we uh, did not want to be uh, trying to solve these particular problems. We wanted to be able to look out the window to identify the features as they came up so that we would be able to pinpoint just where in the landing ellipse the, the computer was taking us. Buzz was carrying on a rapid-fire conversation with the computer at that point, but I think we really have to give the credit to the control center in this case. They were the people that really came through and helped us and said, continue, which is what we wanted to hear. Uh, gentlemen, you're about to take some tours, and I wonder what your feelings are. Uh, is that perhaps the most difficult part of the mission, or are you looking forward to it? Well, certainly the, the part that we're least prepared to handle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for Mr. Armstrong and more on the landing, did at any time you consider an abort while you were getting the alarms and so forth? Well, I, uh, I think that in simulations, uh, we, we have a large number of failures and we're usually spring-loaded to the abort position. In this case, in the real, <laughs> real flight, we're spring-loaded to the land position. <laughs> Uh, we were certainly going to continue with the descent uh, as long as we could safely do so. And uh, as, soon as, as soon as program alarms, computer alarms manifest themselves, why you realize that you have a possible abort situation uh, uh, to contend with. But our, our procedure throughout, throughout a preparation phase was to, was to uh, always try to keep going as long as we we could uh, so that we could bypass these types of problems. The, uh, the computer was continuing to issue guidance throughout this time period and was continuing to fly the vehicle down in the same way that it, uh, it was programmed to do. The only thing that was missing during this time period is that we did not have some of the displays on the uh, computer keyboard and we had to make several entries at this time in order to clear up uh, that area. Uh, would the crew consider a moon 
mission of a similar nature again, or would you prefer to have some other kind of a mission? And secondly, I think this question was asked, but I didn't get the complete answer. How do you propose to restore some normalcy to your private lives in the years ahead? I, I wish I knew the answer to the latter part of your question. <laughs> kind of depends on you. <laughs> Based on your own experience in, in space, do you or any of you feel that uh, there will ever be an opportunity for a woman to become an astronaut in our space program? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> Three days after the press conference, Neil, Mike, and Buzz began what they were least prepared for, the celebration. First, they visited three cities in one day, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. President Nixon got them started by having Air Force Two fly them and their families to New York City. By all accounts, not even Charles Lindbergh's record-setting 1927 parade approached the size of the crowd to cheer Apollo 11 astronauts through a blizzard of ticker tape down New York's Canyon of Heroes between the skyscrapers. When the final count had been taken, four million had celebrated Apollo 11's achievement. Neil had only one complaint. Those who tossed whole stacks of computer punch cards out of the windows weren't aware some of the stacks didn't come apart, and they hit like a brick. There were dents in their cars and bumps on their heads. As wild as the celebration had been in New York, the crowds in Chicago were even wilder. By the time they arrived in Los Angeles for the presidential state dinner in Beverly Hills, the astronauts were deaf from shouting, their smiles were frozen, and their fingers were crushed. None was looking forward to shaking another hand. Even their formal wear was more comfortable than the noise of the crowds. As promised, President Nixon and his wife, Pat, along with their grown daughters, Julie and Tricia, hosted the astronauts and their wives in their presidential suite. Joining them were former First Lady Mamie Eisenhower, Esther Goddard, widow of America's father of rocketry, Robert Goddard, and many government notables, including governors from 44 states. Governor Ronald Reagan of California was very interested in their flight, and they were most pleased with all the movers and shakers, the famous and the celebrities who were there. They had never been invited, let alone honored, at a presidential state dinner. Neil was especially happy to see Jimmy Doolittle. Doolittle was the man who headed the NACA when Neil had been hired by the Flight Science Agency in 1955. Doolittle, Lindbergh, Gagarin, Shepard, and Glenn were Neil's heroes, and there was another, Werner von Braun, the great rocket scientist, the father of the Saturn V that had so flawlessly boosted them to the moon, was there, and each member of the crew took special note of the presence of Jimmy Stewart, Bob Hope, and so many of their heroes from the movies. Neil had hoped Charles Lindbergh would be there, the famed aviator had been invited 
but chose not to come out of his self-imposed seclusion, a decision Neil would soon appreciate. Following all the congratulations and speeches at the dinner, Armstrong was most happy to see his own family, his parents as well as his grandmother and sister and brother, and their families were there. He tried to spend as much time with them as possible. The three-city tour and presidential state dinner were only the beginning. Next, they threw ticker tape and confetti at them in Houston, along with the ultimate Texas barbecue in the Astrodome. Frank Sinatra was master of ceremonies. Then, they had to prepare for the coming four weeks. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 231 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Final Duties and World Reaction. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today, we salute the mere ISS level of donors. There are four so far this year. Mere ISS donors contribute $80 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Mere ISS donors. I had a few afterthoughts after this week's episode. First, let me apologize for not getting finished with Apollo 11. I had intended to do that this week, but I found so much good information to share that I just didn't want to jam it all in. Try to fit it all in, and I've got 20, 25 more minutes worth of information to give you, and that'll be covered next week. The next thought I had was about the moon race. From our perspective in the present, we know that the moon race was over after Apollo 11. But at the time, U.S. officials did not consider the space race over, nor did they count the Soviets out. On July 24, 1969, NASA Administrator Thomas Paine said he believed the Soviets would have cosmonauts on the moon within the next 18 months. And with a vigorous program already laid out for the next three to four years, NASA officials intended not to relinquish the advantage. Now, in the end, they did cancel Apollos 18, 19, and 20. And speaking of cancellations, shortly after the moon landing, there was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer that asked a very timely question. Quote, Will this magnificent accomplishment serve as inspiration, or will the inspiration be abandoned before the veiled censure of those who seem to suggest a solution of all human dilemmas lies in turning away from space to other priorities, end quote. That is kind of what we did. Can you imagine all the technological breakthroughs that would have had to occur if we stayed 
the course of exploration, perhaps even to Mars, or at least built a base on the moon. What could have occurred? Think about that. There would have to be advances in power generation. Fuel cells, photovoltaic, or something we haven't used yet. The technology for cheap and abundant electrical power that was renewable would have changed the quality of life throughout the world. Electricity is a major factor. Then think about the advances we would have made in healthcare. We would have had to just to keep the astronauts alive. Or perhaps an advance in CO2 scrubbers that could have eventually helped on Earth. The list goes on. Anyway, that is just my opinion and your mileage may vary. Okay, I have placed pictures associated with this episode and the audio on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Andrew C. donated at the Orion level. Graham M. sent in another donation and moves up to the Orion level with his rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. Paul P. from Australia donated at the Apollo level. The Linton brothers donated at the Gemini level. Brad M. from North Carolina donated at the Mercury level. Lincoln J. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level, and Jack P. increased his pledge on Patreon and moved to the Soyuz level. Now, over the transition from October to November, we lost three Patreons and gained one Patreon, so we have a net of minus two. So that brings our Patreon total back down to 138 That is 12 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. Our overall donors has reached 281, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Bostock level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have an item to give away this week to one of the 2017 donors. It is the coveted NASA 3.5-inch in diameter meatball sticker. To select a winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Chris Noble. Chris, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I have several more of these coveted NASA stickers, so we'll have a new drawing next week for the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast received 
several new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks. I would like to thank Kay Platner, DJ Mars Bars, Irish Dance Girl, and Q Only, and also those who rated the podcast five stars anonymously. I certainly do appreciate your taking the time to do that. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will wrap up Apollo 11. I think we will cover the world reaction part and the uh, the Soviets especially and some Alexei Leonov. Also want to apologize. My voice is kind of going in and out here. I've had a just a small cold and uh, I seem to be getting over that. So sorry, my voice it seems to be cracking sometimes. In podcast news, October, we had a really good amount of downloads. The podcast was downloaded in 85 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most episode downloads in October. U.S. UK remains at number 2. Germany moves up to number 3. Australia drops to 4 in a very close race with Germany. Canada remains at 5. Japan remains at 6. Sweden remains at 7. New Zealand remains at 8. The Netherlands moved up to ninth. And France dropped to 10th. Big shout out to all my listeners in the top 10 countries for downloads. Well, we have made it back home safely and with very little damage. Usually on these trips with the camper, something goes wrong. For instance, the trip I took in the winter slash spring of this year, I managed to slide one of the rear tires off a curb when I was turning, and that curb had a steel reinforcement which cut a gash in the tire, and I had to replace it. Last fall, a similar thing happened, and I dented the underskirt of the camper. So I have to try to remember to really swing out when you're making those right-hand turns. The problem usually occurs when something unexpected happens, such as another motorist comes flying up from the opposite direction and parks his vehicle past the white line so I don't have room to make my turn. So then I have to turn sharper to avoid them. So I've got to fix that little situation. I guess I should pause and just stop where I am and let them go. Anyway, but that didn't happen this time. This trip we did pretty good. We did have a blowout on one of the camper tires. I'm not sure why that happened. We were just going down the interstate, and we weren't going fast. It was about 55 miles an hour, and I heard a pop, and I checked the mirror and saw tire pieces flying around. (laughs) That's not a good feeling, folks. I got to a, a relatively safe location and changed the tire, so it really wasn't that big of a deal. But that tire was totally destroyed. There was no tread. It was just sidewall that was spinning there on that tire. So, uh, of course, I had to buy a new one. (laughs) I have since been told that 
three years is about all you're going to get with a tire on a camper because of the unusual way they uh, are stressed, especially if you have tandems. I've got four wheels on the back of the camper, so they are sort of, when you pull them down the road, you'll notice that one one uh, of the wheels is cur- curving in a little bit and the other's curving out. That's kind of the way the thing seems to work. Anyway, the tread still looked fine. I, mean, there was good, I still have good tread on all those tires, but I've had to replace two of them, so I guess I'll be pretty soon out something will happen on the other side of the camper. Then, something totally strange happened. When it rained, the truck started leaking in the cab. And I thought that was crazy because the truck's not that old. So I got on the internet and found a forum for my truck. And apparently, my truck's model has a problem with the third brake light seal. In other words, it's the third brake light that sits on the cab, at the top of the cab. Apparently, there the uh, sealant on that brake, brake light fails occasionally, and it'll just let in a bunch of water. You would not believe how much water was in that thing. So what I did was I took the light off, and I caulked it up, made two layers of caulk on it, and screwed it back in, and caulked a little bit on the outside, and sure enough, it stopped leaking. So that was uh, a major relief right there. Okay, you know a little bit more about camping today. <laughs> Probably some of you already knew this. Anyway, it was a good trip, and uh, we got to use up some of those $3 per night campsites, which we enjoyed. Okay, I will try to have episode 232 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.